Well, good evening. It's good to be with you tonight. You braved not only the rain, but the dark to get here on time. It's like you know it's going to be dark at 5 o'clock, and then when it happens, you're like, wow, it's actually dark at 5 o'clock. How did that happen already? Uh, as Pastor Tim mentioned at the beginning, we are, uh, we're in the middle of our fall series um, called Legacy, looking at the life of, we looked a little bit at, at Isaac, but we're primarily looking at the life of Jacob as we work through um, the middle part of the book of Genesis. And we're going to be continuing that tonight, finishing Genesis chapter 30, and then looking at Genesis chapter 31 tonight. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to go ahead and open them um, to Genesis. We're going to be covering a lot, of, uh, a lot of Scripture. Our story kind of is a long one tonight. Um, I hope to still have us out in time, though. That's my, my hope. I don't make promises, but that's my hope um, that we won't be here late. But Genesis chapter 30, starting in verse 25, is where we'll, we'll start in the text tonight. Well, some of the, the movies that I think of when I think of my favorite movies are ones that are kind of two different sides that are kind of battling and scheming against each other. And those are often the kind of movies where at the end there's kind of this big twist, big reveal that if you haven't seen it before and you didn't see it coming, you're like, ah, oh, there it was. Like, what, what, a, what a way to outthink the other side. One of the, the favorite movies of mine that I think of this happening is the movie called Ocean's Eleven. Um, not the 1960s one, oh, that one's good as well, but the one that was remade about 15, 20 years ago um, in the early 2000s. And you see there's these two parties, and I love why, why it's such a great movie for me, is Danny Ocean, the main character played by George Clooney. He shows up, and the casino owner knows he's there. He knows he's a robber. He knows he's going to try and rob him, but he doesn't know how. And the whole thing is him scheming and going about, and he knows he's up to no good. And so both sides start scheming back and forth, and he has him followed, but this guy knows he's going to have him followed, so he starts to do things to throw him off. And then suddenly at the end, there's this big twist where he thinks he's getting robbed. He calls in the FBI agents, which the FBI agents actually are the bad guys pretending to be FBI agents. They come in, and they rob his vault right in front of him, and they leave. And at the very end, you're like, oh, that was amazing. That was amazing. Like these two guys were scheming back and forth and, and all the brilliant play that happened in there. Our text tonight is of two primarily characters, two men, Jacob and Laman, scheming against each other. Jacob and Laban and their schemes that keep going back and forth against each other. And tonight we're going to look at, and the big theme from our passage tonight in Genesis 30 and 31 is this, that our security as people, our security rests in the character of God, not the cleverness of our schemes. Our security as people rests in the character of God, not the cleverness of our individual schemes. Well, you may think to yourself, well, I'm not a kind of person who does a lot of scheming. I leave that, like, when I think of that, I think, oh, those are like the smart people who have time to think about schemes. I don't scheme and have these great master plans. But when I think of scheming and what we often see even in the text tonight is what I think oftentimes we just call living our lives relying on human wisdom, not God's wisdom. And we live our lives this way if we reflect on our lives all too often when it comes to relationships, when it comes to how we parent if we have kids, when it comes to our jobs and our careers and our future and how we interact with people around us. So oftentimes we're filled with human wisdom. We're scheming up and we're thinking ourselves of how we could work out these situations rather than looking to God. 
Well, this passage in Genesis 30 and 31 mentions the word deceive or trick eight different times. And it's this theme as Jacob and Laban go back before. And as we look at it, we're going to notice tonight, we're going to point out five shortcomings of our own schemes. Five shortcomings when we live life scheming for ourselves, looking at our own human wisdom, rather than looking at God, how that comes up short of what God has for us. Genesis chapter 30, verse 25 says this. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given to you. And so last week we looked at Jacob's um, and many kids that were born to him. He had 12 kids by the end of our section last week. And now he's asking Laban, my time here has been completed. Let me leave to go back to my homeland. Remember, Jacob left the promised land to go find Laban. And he's found him. He's married both Rachel and Leah. He has kids. Now he wants to head back home. There's an irony in these words that he's using, talking about serve and service and my, my wages that he comes. It reminds us back to when he initially interacted with Laban and he asked him how long he needed to serve him to get these wives. And now it's coming back again. Laban countersteps him and responds in verse 27. Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight... I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. So Laban has a counter offer to what Jacob says, as well as this acknowledgement of his relying on who Jacob is. See, his counter offer is it's been 14 years. Remember, he had to serve seven years for Leah. He thought it was for Rachel. We did that a couple weeks ago. There was the whole mix-up. It was dark. He wakes up in the morning, not the woman he thought he was supposed to marry, right? Laban kind of out-schemed him there. And he was like, well, if you want to say seven more, you can for Rachel. And Jacob said, yes, I will. Those 14 years have now come to an end. But Laban doesn't want him to leave, and he somehow learned by divination, we don't know exactly by what means this is, but, but that God has blessed him because of Jacob's presence. We see this continually in the book of Genesis, wherever the patriarchs go, wherever Abraham went, the people around him were blessed. This goes back to Genesis 12 and the promise given to Abraham, whoever blesses you, I will bless, whoever curses you, I will curse. Abraham, when he was with Abimelech, Abimelech had Amazing blessing in Genesis chapter 18. When Isaac was with Abimelech, again, huge blessing. And now when Jacob is with Laban, Laban is receiving all this blessing because he's associated with Jacob. Laban wants him to stay because Jacob has made him a very wealthy man. He doesn't want him to go. So he says, name your wages. Jacob said to him, verse 29, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when, I, when shall I provide for my own household also? Jacob agrees that Laban has become wealthy, agrees that it's because of God, but he's saying, I want my own opportunity as well. It's time for me to go off on my own. Verse 31, Laban responds, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. Right? He's saying, I'm not going to be indebted to you again, Laban. I've seen how this worked out for me last time. I'm not going to fall for this again. But he says this, if you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. 
Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and shekeled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later, when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. So what Jacob is saying is there's a rare amongst most of the sheep and goats, there's these rare few that are speckled or amongst the goats that are black. Amongst those, let's take them all out, set them aside, and in the future, whichever ones that happen to be speckled or black, those will be mine, Jacob says. And that's, that's all I asked to keep of you. That's all I asked. Now, we would know and, and Laban would know that this is a very rare occurrence. The majority of the sheep weren't speckled. And so he's thinking, wait, so you want to take those out so they're not in the breeding anyways, and you want to just keep the ones that aren't speckled and think that they will produce lots of speckled ones. He's like, this guy's an idiot. He's like, of course I'll do that. Yes, I will. Verse 34, Laban jumps on it. Good. Let it be as you have said. But the scheming starts already. Verse 35, but that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. He doesn't allow Jacob to do it. Laban goes in right away and he removes them. He's scheming. Scheme continues, verse 36. And he set a distance of three days journeys between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. So Laban's thinking, all right, I'm going to take them out before you can do anything about it, and I'm going to get three days away so that they don't randomly mix in, and you can claim some as your own. Laban thinks that he's one-upped. He's out-schemed Jacob in this. Verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. Now this is a bizarre passage to us in 2018 living in Chicago. We're like, wait, what happened? We miss so much of what goes on both in their traditions as well as even the puns that are being played. So it talks about how Jacob takes sticks of poplar and almond and he peels them off so that they were white. Poplar and the word white in Hebrew sound exactly the same as the name Laban. So literally as these goats are looking at Laban, they're going to produce goats that no longer belong to Laban but belong to Jacob. It was also thought then that looking upon these white things while they mated would produce speckled um, animals. Now this, if you were with us last week, and we talked about the mandrakes, and there was kind of this tradition that it would allow women to have childbirth. This is the same kind of superstitious belief that they had amongst their people. And so it's this similar thing of them just doing whatever they think they can. Jacob trying anything to separate the flocks for his advantage. Not only that, but in verse 40, it says that Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flock towards the striped and all the the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. So not only has Jacob in his mind figured out a way to get himself more sheep, he's got himself the strong sheep, 
right? And when the weak and the sick would go to drink, he would pull off the sticks and think, all right, now I've figured this out. These ones will become Laban's. And through this, verse 43 says this, thus the man, speaking of Jacob, the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. This idea of Jacob having camels and donkeys and servants goes to to show an extravagant wealth. What verse 43 is summarizing for us is the promise that God made to Jacob in chapter 28, Bethel, has come true. That he would be faithful, he would provide for Jacob outside of the land before he was to bring him back into the land. But with all this scheming that goes on, there's one shortcoming that seems to be, especially with Laban, but even could be on Jacob's ideas as well. And the first shortcoming we see in this part, in the end of chapter 30, is that when we rely on our schemes, it's easy for us to attribute credit to ourselves rather than to God. It's easy for us to attribute credit in our lives to ourselves rather than God. When you have a great idea and you go out and it works, who do you think you give the credit to? Yourself, right? Because that was your great idea that that happened. And the more that we rely on our own ideas, our own human wisdom, it's easy for us to think that it's actually us who is responsible for the success in our lives. Laban, in this passage, gives this verbal acknowledgement that his goodness is from God, but he certainly doesn't act like it. He gives verbal acknowledgement that all these good things are from God, but his life says otherwise. I think so often that's so true to how so many Christians live. We give verbal acknowledgement. Sure, everything good that I have in my life is from God. But we don't often live that way in our day-to-day lives. We don't often live that way in our attitudes in our lives. In fact, so often we think in our lives that anything good that I have is due to my effort, my hard work, my intelligence, and anything bad that I have in my life, well, that's God's fault. Right? Why didn't he help me there? That one's God's fault, when actually the opposite is true. We see this relying on our own human wisdom and attributing credit to ourselves with the lack of thankfulness that's true in the lives of so many Christians. When we aren't thankful people, it's because we think that this, any success or anything good in our lives is because we've earned it, because we deserve it, because it's something that we should have. And a thankful person is one who attributes credit not to themselves, but to God and recognizes that every good thing comes not from our own efforts, but actually comes from God himself. So the schemes have already started between Jacob and Laban, and they only continue. Chapter 31, verse 1 says this. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the lands of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So God calls him to head back home. Verse 40. Sorry, verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them. Now it's interesting, why did Jacob call Rachel and Leah out into the field? If you think about it, in both of the stories before in the life of both Sarah as well as Rebecca, huge things happened because private conversations that took place in the tent were overheard. Right When the angel came and visited Abraham, who was next door eavesdropping who started laughing? It was Sarah. 
right? When Isaac was talking to Esau, saying how he wanted to bless him, who was eavesdropping next door in the tent, overhearing and about to spoil the plan? It was Rebecca. Jacob's like, Laban ain't catching me here, right? He's not going to have some spy outside my tent that I can't see or hear. We're going out to the field. So he leads his wives, Rachel and Leah, out, and he says to them, verse 5, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, this spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the stripe shall be your wages, then all the flock bore stripes. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. So Jacob talks to to Leah and Rachel and helps them understand, hey, this is all because of God's doing. And we get this insight that we actually can guess this has been taking place over six years where, where um, Jacob was pasturing the flocks. That over six years, Laban seems to keep trying to renegotiate, re-scheming. No, now I want the spotted ones. No, now I want this ones. Now I want these. And Jacob's saying, whatever he tries to do, God outsmarts him. And God is the one who's being responsible. God is the one who is providing for me. And so he says, this is the God I serve, the God who, who sent me here from Bethel 20 years earlier before he met Rachel and Leah and is now calling me to go back to my home. Verse 14, then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. It seems to be that the wages that Jacob worked for was a dowry, but that money in some sense should have been sent as a gift to his daughters to start their new life with Jacob. But instead, Laban took it and wasted it all on him. They continue verse 16. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock and his possession that he had acquired in Padam Aaron to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. This isn't like he puts one camel on and sneaks out in the night. This is a ton of stuff, a ton of sheep, a ton of goats, camels, everything. He gets them all up and he leaves. Now you may think, well, what does Laban think about this? Right? Laban can't be very happy. Laban renegotiated to keep him here. So what does Laban think about this? Verse 19, Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household goods. They would shear the sheep and there was often a big family occasion where everyone would go and you would leave the camp. So Laban's out on business helping his sons shear their sheep when Jacob says, now's the time, now's the opportunity, let's hit the road. 
And so they leave, and we get this little note, which we're going to see in a few verses why this is significant, that Rachel, her departing gift to her father, is stealing his household gods. Verse 20, and Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean. As you may well know if you've been with us, Jacob's name means to grasp the heel, which is a, a, a way of play on words of talking about a deceiver or a trickster. So this, this passage is basically saying the trickster has once again tricked someone. The deceiver has again deceived by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had, arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. The second shortcoming of our own schemes that we see here is that our schemes tend to create division and animosity in relationships. They tend to create division and animosity in relationships. How sad is it that it seems the only thing that will bring Rachel and Leah together is a mutual distrust and hatred for their very own father. Right? That, that their own schemes were just causing greater dissension, greater discord amongst those who should not have felt the same. In our lives, our schemes and our plans from our own human wisdom often lead us to be more competitive with other people on who we should have the, the right mind with, the same mind with, rather than camaraderie with others. It goes against what, what Paul encourages us to in Philippians chapter 2, where he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. When we rely on our own schemes, we rely on the interests of ourselves, not on the interests of others. And in his own human wisdom, it's created division and animosity even amongst family relationships where there should have been unity. Laban's out shearing the sheep, thinking life is good. God has continued to bless him. Jacob's been a part of his family for now 20 years. The last six, he stayed on this deal. When suddenly the news comes to him, Jacob's gone. He says, Jacob's gone. Who else is gone? Leah's gone. Rachel's gone. All your grandkids are gone. All the flocks are gone. They're all gone. Verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. This, this phrase, be careful not to say anything to him, either good or bad, probably does not mean that he can't actually speak to Jacob at all. But it's kind of a, a, a way of saying, don't say something good or bad to him. Basically saying, don't overstep your bounds. Right? Recognize where you have authority and where you don't, Laban. Don't overstep the boundaries that you shouldn't overstep. The next part we see Laban catching up to him. Verse 25, and Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tent in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? The exact same phrase was muttered by Jacob about 13 years earlier when he woke up the morning after his wedding. And he cried out to Laban as it wasn't Rachel, but it was Leah. And he says, what have you done? Now Laban calls it out as Jacob has schemed back against him. What have you done that you have tricked me 
and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and song, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you have longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? He says, You're lucky that God said to me this, because if he didn't, imagine what I was going to do to you, Jacob. The third thing that caused the third shortcoming of our schemings is that our schemings and our, our human wisdom cause us to think that we are in control. They cause us to think that we are in control. Notice Laban says to Jacob, I have power to do you harm. In reality, he probably had more men. Jacob's out in the wilderness primarily with his wives, with women and children, and the workers that he has with him. Laban probably comes with all of his hunters, all of his armed men for ready for war. And he's saying, I could hurt you. He doesn't recognize in this moment that why has Jacob been so blessed, been so successful? It's because of God. It's because God is on Jacob's side. Yet in the moment, Laban thinks, no, I'm the one in charge. I'm the one who controls everything that's going on here. I'm the one who has the power. This story reminds us of a scary yet secure truth in the Christian life. You aren't in control of your life. God is. You aren't the one in ultimate control of your life. God is. And that doesn't mean that we should just revert to like Christian pacifism where we don't even try, where nothing matters, where we shouldn't give our effort, or our resolve to try the hardest of the plans that God has given and laid before us. Not at all. But so often we tend to live our lives thinking that we are in control. And I don't know about you, but most of us like to be in control. I don't know if I would call myself a control freak, but if I'm not, I tend to nudge that way on the scale of control freak. Right? I like to know what's going on with my life. I like to have things. I like to have a plan. I want things to be set up. I want to know what's going on with everything. And one of the things that God's been teaching me in the season of life that I find myself in is this. You're not in control, but that's okay. He's been teaching me that I'm not in control of my life and everything that happens, but that's okay. Because the one who is in control has a greater plan than I could ever have for my life, and that's God. God is in control of all of human history. God is in control of our lives. Friends, if, if your life isn't making sense, if there's things that are happening to you that you don't understand, just realize that it's actually all still in God's hands. The good and the bad are still all in God's hand. He has promised that he will work everything out for the good of those who trust him and for the glory of his name. God is still in control even when our lives seem out of control. But oftentimes our human wisdom causes us to think that we actually have power and we need to recognize and submit that God is the one who's in control. So he confronts Jacob and in his confrontation at the end of verse 30, he challenges him with this, why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered verse 31 and said to Laban, because I was afraid. That's why I left secretly, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. 
Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. Jacob doesn't know what Rachel's done. We know. Jacob doesn't know. And suddenly we're like, "Uh uh-oh, what did he just say? Anyone who with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban goes on a little treasure hunt. He goes on a little treasure hunt in Jacob's camp. Verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and then into Leah's tent and in the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. And it gets slower. The drama just keeps stretching on and on and on. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. She's up to her own tricks here as well. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. This, this phrase, felt all about the tent, the last time the phrase felt about was used of Isaac feeling about the blind, as a blind man, feeling the face of Jacob. It's kind of like a comical desperation of someone searching through the dark room, not being able to find, just kind of throwing their hands all over the place. It's meant to make Laban look kind of like a fool. As Laban, just as this blind fool searching about, well, Rachel's probably sitting there smiling on her camel, looking at her dad doing this. Verse 35, and she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. She claims that her menstrual cycle is happening and she doesn't want to get up from her camel. So Laban searched but did not find the household gods. The fourth shortcoming of our own schemes is that it often encourages deceit rather than the truth. In our own human wisdom to protect ourselves, to protect what we've thought of, our ideas, we'll do anything to cover ourselves, including deceiving and lying to others, not just going with the truth. Now, we don't know if Rachel was actually being truthful or not about why she didn't get off her camel, but we know that she was deceptive, right? We, she knew exactly what she was doing and why she was doing it. And we often in our lives, there, there's a, uh, a temptation for us to compromise our character to make ourselves look good. Right, to compromise our character, to make our own ideas, our own ways look better, and to think, well, that will be okay because of this. It'll be all right. It'll work out. I can, I can compromise a little bit here. I can lean a little towards deceit because God will ultimately take care of it in the end. But over and over, we see that compromising our character to reach a desired end is never worth it. And Rachel, in her own scheming way, now turns towards deceit and deception towards her very father rather than towards the truth because of the scheme that she's playing. Verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. 20 years of frustration on Jacob. He's probably been wanting to put into Laban for a long time but you don't put into your boss all the time, right? Like you want to keep working for him. You want a job on Tuesday. So tomorrow when you go in, you're not going to scream at your boss. That's good common sense as well as good Christian love. But Jacob's finally like, all right, my time is done with this man. 20 years comes out of Jacob. It says this, Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? 
What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you, I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. A common custom in that time was if a shepherd had a sheep die on him that was attacked, they could bring it to the master, show the skeleton, and that they wouldn't be charged for the loss because it was just a natural thing. What Jacob's saying is, I didn't even do that. I paid for the losses myself because you demanded it, because you were so harsh towards me. Verse 40, there I was by day, the heat consumed me and the cold by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six for your flock and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Laban realizes that he's been put in a corner, and he answers verse 43. He answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and there they ate by the heap. And Laban called it Jagar Sadahutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is a witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this, excuse me, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his grandchildren and his daughters, and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. The fifth shortcoming of our schemes that we see in this text tonight is that our, our schemes are often driven by self-preservation rather than by selfless love. They're driven by self-preservation rather than by selfless love. Laban seems to finally consent to all this when he realizes it's the only thing that he has. He doesn't do this out of love for Jacob, love for his daughters, love for his grandkids. He finally does it when he realizes that it's the only thing left for him to do. He does it out of his own self-preservation rather than out of love for someone else. We see in how he even words what they're witnessing that Laban still doesn't trust Jacob. Notice, if you oppress my daughters, God is witness between us. He's like, I still don't trust you, Jacob. I don't trust how you're going to treat my daughters. I don't trust that you're not going to take more women to be your wives. I don't trust you. 
But ultimately, it worked out for the best for Laban because he's thinking, hey, Jacob will continue to become very powerful. I don't want Jacob to come attack me. Therefore, I'm going to make a treaty. This is for Laban all about self-preservation. And oftentimes, when we rely on our own human wisdom, we're not out to love others. We're just out there to preserve ourselves, our reputation, how we look before others, how we stand in the sight of the people around us. We often, when we rely on human wisdom, are driven by self-preservation rather than by selfless love. So we see here tonight that these two men, and even Rachel as well, who scheme back and forth against each other, get nowhere quickly. And they keep messing with each other's lives, and it doesn't lead to anything good. But our security as people rests not in the cleverness of our schemes, but in the character of God. So I want to ask you tonight, where does your security lie? Where does your security lie? Not just in this life, but in the world to come. Where does your eternal security lie? Because as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian tonight, your security doesn't rest on any scheme that you've developed to achieve salvation, but on Jesus Christ alone. There's so many passages in the New Testament that talk about the faithfulness of Jesus, and that's how our salvation lies. One of my favorite is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, who says this, speaking of Jesus, it says, Jesus, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, our security when it comes to our lives, our security when it comes to our salvation, doesn't rest on how smart we are, how good our plans are. It rests on one thing alone, the character of God. God is faithful. Jesus has loved us. In our sin, he came and he died for us, and he offers us forgiveness and hope, and it's only because of the faithfulness of God, not because of any clever scheme that we have, that we can have eternal security. So often in our world, we try and scheme our way to a good standing before God. We think, well, if I do enough good things, if I break enough bad habits, if I go to church enough, certainly after all of these good ideas, good plans of mine, that that will earn me something before God. My friends, it doesn't. It doesn't. Our schemes ultimately get us nowhere to God. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. And we can have assuredness in him, a security in him, because he is faithful. He is faithful to Jacob. He's been faithful to you and me as well. God, we thank you that you are a faithful God. That no matter how hard we may try and scheme our ways away from you or to you, that there is nothing that is outside your sight. God, that you are a perfect and holy God. We thank you for your faithfulness, that we can have security in approaching you right now through the love of Jesus Christ because we know that you are a faithful God and who will always love us because that's what you've promised, not because of anything good that we've done or any great thoughts that we've had. We thank you, God, that our security lies in you, not in any ideas that we have in our own lives. Help us to trust you more, to rely on your wisdom rather than our own human wisdom. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.